Hey everybody, welcome back to Up The Vibe and today I'm joined by Jean Branch and we're discussing social care during the pandemic and vaccines. Hi Jean, how are you today? I'm all right Joe. how are you? I'm very good, yes. Um, so I did uh, listen to a podcast you on recently, um, it was the Fat Earth podcast and you were talking yes. about social care so I wanted to bring you on to sort of elaborate on that and maybe re repeat some of that but um, yes. just wanted to tell me a bit about your role and your observations during the pandemic as an adult social care worker. Yeah, I mean, I ended up doing the, um, just to give a bit of context, I ended up doing the interview for Joe Ward on Fat Earth because I met him at the um, Parliament Square protest on the 11th of November with regards to um, care home workers that was the date from on when they, they would be sacked and it was also kind of a protest for um against nhs mandatory vaccination for nhs staff um joe was there and was looking for carers to speak to somebody introduced us and i said yep yeah, uh, absolutely um it's i was doing care work i started work as a carer in october 2019 um prior to the start of the pandemic. Um, and then obviously I worked through um, the pandemic in for an agency, do, which basically means that you're, you go in and out of people's houses, you're given a rota every day, you go in and out of people's houses, there's no social distancing. In adult social care, what we do is we go into people's homes and we provide the care that they need. This will range from getting them up, washing them, changing adult nappies, dressing, hoisting if needs be, feeding, giving medication, um, and then up to, you know, the things taking out all kinds of things that can entail. But as you can imagine, um, there is no, you cannot social distance in this no. work. It's, and what was interesting was that when the pandemic, I, I, I can't even remember now how it was declared, you know, but. Um, Two weeks to save the NHS, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but the interesting thing was, you know, when all of society kind of like shut down and locked down and people like went to working at home, you know, the, in what we did, there was no question that we could do that. I mean, well, what, what, what are you going to do? You're going to leave somebody, you know, lying in their excrement. Yeah, you, you, you can't, this is, can't this do is that over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, this is something which just recently I have really thought about. And sorry to kind of, I'll go back to what we're talking about. And it's this whole idea. There was, a, there was Matt Hancock tweeted something and it was about kind of like, oh, no, that was it. It was in the Daily Telegraph. And it was a piece about basically saying it was immoral for carers, for care staff, and to not get vaccinated, to take care of people. And it made me think, as with so much of which has happened with the pandemic, flip that on its head. So where, where does that sit you as a carer? You know, we, we didn't, we, we wouldn't even have thought of not going to take care of the people that we, who were our client not clients our patients whatever you want to call them and it's so who's immoral was it immoral of us to continue working because we weren't vaccinated because such a thing like that didn't exist were we immoral because we put their safety and health before our own 
knowing that we could be putting ourselves and our families at risk, were we immoral? Was it was where's yeah. the morality of a kind of like, you know, a health secretary who says, oh, and it's okay, you're all cannon fodder. We won't let GPs work, we won't let physiotherapists work, but you can work. Mm-hmm. So sorry, it's just a concept yeah. I've been thinking within my mind and just yeah, going, definitely. how, how dare these people who did not have to put themselves in danger or kind of like, well, the danger questionable you know yeah. in their terms danger yeah. um but yet they they're allowed to criticize us and make judgments on the things that we did you know I worked through the whole thing yeah. you know i had the tests and things like that but i had nothing to protect me yet now should i wish to be a carer i've got to be vaccinated yeah, we, we, we can touch on that. A bit, Joe. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, we can touch on the the vaccines a, a bit later. Um, yes, sir. But uh, you know, during your observations, I, th- I think you said, and I just wanted to repeat it, that ha- you had been in and out of houses. You you weren't yeah. practicing social distancing for the whole period. Um, yeah. And you and you gave some statistics about how many people actually got COVID and died. And well, this was-, was this this was the bizarre thing. I mean, in the first instance, I was doing agency work up until August twenty, um, August twenty twenty, I should say. And um, in that time, in our particular agency, and this just shows we are very kind of like hygienic, blah blah. We had one. This is what I was told by my bosses. We'd had one positive client who was 89 and survived, you know. And then we had one of our carers who I didn't know, I have to say, she'd gone on holiday. And then for some reason she hadn't come back to work. And then it transpired that she had somehow caught COVID and was really unwell, had been in hospital for about six weeks, I think, and then died. And what came to light was that she had a pre-existing heart condition. Mm-hmm. And um, but so, you know, comorbidity, whatever, obviously very, very sad. Um, but what was interesting was it wasn't until that point that our agency actually um, consulted us and actually said, oh, has anyone got any pre-existing health conditions we should know about? Because obviously that's not, that wasn't something which our agency had ever asked us. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing, you know, in terms of how, you know, carers were treated, we, I mean, I remember, you know, our PPE, I mean, we, our standard PPE would be like, you've got a plastic penny and plastic gloves. And then we were given, <laughs> it always makes me laugh, we were given, um, you know, like the little blue face masky things, yeah. the disposable ones. We used to be, we basically had one of those per shift. Mm-hmm. So that could be, you know, up to 14 hours yeah. in and out, all different places. And that's what you had, you know, and it's, it's it, famously, I had one case where I was, um, I mean, this, this, this kind of just shows you the complete irony of it all and where, you know, I was working with another carer and it was a Sunday lunchtime and we were on a job and the person who we were caring for basically had a seizure of some sort when we were in the property. Um, obviously, we called 999. And even though we were pretty sure he was dead, I started to administer CPR to him and we kept the um, the emergency services on the phone and they said, we'll get paramedics to you. Um and so I was probably doing CPR for about 20 minutes. My co-worker was counting, holding the phone. And then two ambulances arrived. 
four paramedics, all in complete head-to-toe hazmat gear. Oh, my goodness. And wear their plastic apron, paper mask and a pair of gloves. Yeah. And it it was just the irony of it, Joe. You know, it's kind of like, what? Are we? And and it was funny because when everything was, you know, he unfortunately, he did die. That was very sad. Um, And one of the ambulances stayed there to wait for um, the police to come because the way that death had to be recorded. And I was talking to one of the ambulance guys outside and he said, and he said, you guys are amazing. I can't believe that you have carried on working. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you want some spare face masks so I can go back to the ambulance station and fill up? And we were like, oh, yes, please. Any face mask you got would be great. Mm. Yeah. But that just the difference in, you know, I, I don't, you know, we were told as carers, we were told even if you're exposed to COVID, you carry on, carry on working unless you develop some symptoms. Our yeah. testing for us wasn't introduced. I mean, you know, again, you know, you know, I know people who worked for the NHS, they weren't public facing and they were tested way before any of us. You know, the only the council only started kind of like rolling out testing to carers when I think it was um, that was when we'd had the case. And I'd been with him when he collapsed yeah. that day. And so I, I was really, I was washing him really heavily exposed to there, him. There does seem to be some sort of um, almost global level, I'd say global, maybe in the UK and America in particular, sort of a neglect of the social care system during this period. And they it, were the it, ones it, dealing most with the most vulnerable. And it just seems so backwards. Yeah. Was it to be orchestrated or <laughs> that's the uh, question, the conspiracy side of me thinks, was that part no, of it, you know? <laughs> no, no. I mean, the thing was, I mean, it's kind of like, it's just that social care is in such an awful state. I mean, and the thing is, and again, I mean, I, I got very, very vocal about this. And kind of like I wrote to my MP, I had two Zoom online meetings with her. I have written to lots of people, let's put it that way. And the point that I would reiterate is that what I said was, it's oh, you will do anything to stop somebody dying from COVID, but you've got no problem with them dying, lying in their own excrement from neglect. Yeah. The money we have spent on COVID, on the pandemic, you know, all we needed to do. I mean, I'm sorry. Great Barrington Declaration. Absolutely nailed it. We need to take care of our most vulnerable. And yeah. then the rest of society continue. We spent 37 billion on test and trace. We've yeah. spent, you know, to sort out social care, we're talking about 15 billion. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, free outsourced to everybody. And it's just people do not care. It's a dirty little secret. And I have written this, you know, I wrote a letter, this will make you laugh. I wrote a letter to Dominic Cummings at the end of April, kind of like just at the beginning of the lockdown, and just said, this is why are you doing all of this you've got to sort out social care yeah well it's the same thing i mean it's a similar thing with um at the moment um just on a sort of side topic i'm no i've just noticed just recently there's this two big trials going on in america there's the cal rittenhouse trial and then there's also gislin maxwell finally getting uh, in the trial the media attention is all about cal rittenhouse and this poor boy who was attacked by a bunch of criminals and defended himself and did shoot the criminals but it was everything points to self-defense yet the media is all over that 
And then you've got this um, Ghislaine Maxwell who worked with Jeffrey Epstein in procuring children for the basically being raped by the elites and the media almost ignoring it. And it's the same with what you were saying about social care. There's this huge amounts of issues in the social care system and there's kind of a slight, it kind of gets ignored, but when COVID comes along and the fear projection that happened, I remember it, it was just completely overblown. And suddenly all the money and effort and media attention was all on COVID and everything else yeah. that, and that's what really, really upset me at the time was I, just, I could see that the lockdowns and the fear projection, um, the masks um, and everything were just, was going to lead to higher rates of suicide, depression, domestic abuse. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I did, I wrote to my MP, it's actually the same MP, because um, yes. <laughs> we do live uh, locally. Um, and I wrote and said, you know, about these things. And it just, it just didn't seem, I seemed, I felt like alone, just considering this, um, that uh, the repercussions of the, you know, the lockdowns and everything that no, the government had put in wasn't considered at all. It, well, that, but that's like, look at supply chain. You look yeah. at it, well, I'm sorry, I don't have to be a government minister to know that if you want to lock down society and stop all these things, that actually at some point down the line, you're going to have a supply chain problem. So like, really? <laughs> you don't have to be kind of like an expert on transportation to know that's what's going to happen. And we live in a society where everything is just so completely immediacy based in terms of delivery. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is the and the, the it really I really did get a big lesson on, on you know on the fear projection and and just the lack of I'm going to say common sense but there was they almost felt like our minds had been told what to think um, but a lot of things were just getting missed. Well, I, I do think I mean one of the things which I find really sad is how many people. Actually, is it sad? I don't know. A lot of people I know who work in the kind of jobs that can be done at home, they loved lockdown. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Oh, yeah, it's really nice. And I've been going on these cycle rides and London's so empty. And, oh, you know, it's really nice to walk. And, wow, you know, I never realised my community was so nice. It's kind of, well, it's always been here. But people actually, the narrative, this is the problem, Joe, the narrative comes from that part of society which actually sort of enjoyed it because they could stay at home and spend some time with their families, whatever, doing things which they don't normally do. The narrative wasn't told by people who had to go to work. It was like, you've got the people telling the story and then you've got the people delivering to them. Yeah. And that's, you know, and it's completely, no... it's obscene. It's really, really obscene. But unfortunately, you've got enough people sitting there who who did enjoy that and you know and, and and then if the only people who we are hearing in terms of telling us what's happening are those people then that's what people think you know one of the reasons why I turned off you know but it, it, this is the thing I was saying in that other podcast the fact of you know people have turned around to me and said come on so what what do you, why do you think differently about this and my answer would be because if you work in death on a daily basis, you know how many people die in a year or in a day. Mm. And the fact that like the BBC kind of like, I said, I actually call it death porn. Yeah. Because it's almost like, oh my God, that many people have died. You know, it's kind of like mm. 1,600 people on average every day of the year, if not up to 2,000, 
pre-COVID continued. You know, and it's this whole thing of kind of, oh my God, this many people have died. So, you know, it's a tragedy, but what about the cancer deaths? Yeah. What about, you know, we know that the biggest cause of death in this country is dementia. And it's yeah. kind of like, very, very minimally did COVID ever top the, ch- the death charts, to put it in a kind of like crude way. I know. Well, but there, it's, are, but there was a period. just inability to see that perspective. There was a period, I think mid last year, where I counted the number of people that I knew that had died of COVID and the number of people I knew that had died of suicide. And the ones that had died of suicide were bigger and was bigger. And I thought, well, where's the statistics on that? Why, why is that not talked about? Very frustrating. Um, see, this is this is the thing. It's got like, you know, and then we've even got, I think in is it in America? I'm not sure where it sits here, but I think it's in America that the third biggest cause of death, which is normally naturally, is from a medical malpractice. Oh yeah, I saw the the uh, the same thing, yeah, about that. It was yeah, and, and but we know that. And it's hmm. kind of like, well, it, it's just that thing that's kind of like we know the things which people die from. It's kind of like, why are we why do we not talk about that? Yeah, well, I, I, on the same tangent, you know, and talking about um, on, on a more spiritual side, which this, this podcast, you know, leans towards, um, mm. I, I do feel I, I, I am sort of positive about the future. And I do feel there will be a transition yeah. in, coming um, in the way we treat people, not just for um, things like cancer and um you know, and various you know, lung disease and Alzheimer's, but also just general healthcare, just to keep healthy day to day. All that's going to change significantly in the in the coming decades. Um, more towards things which have often been kind of considered woo woo, sort of, um, you know, sort of spiritual um, size of Reiki and um, and lo- love and healing and meditation, mindfulness. All these things. I mean, they're already kind of coming more in people's consciousness but this kind of constant um well not constant but uh natural uh need when you get ill to go to a doctor and get on medication i think that is gonna that's gonna be transitioning and people will i'm not saying that you know pain medication or other forms of pharmaceutical drugs haven't had benefits of course they have but there's going to be a transition there because people are finding out that in, in some cases, well, in a lot of cases, there are people who are just stuck on a variety of different medications and they're not getting better. Um, no, absolutely. And I think that also one of the things is kind of like, you know, the kind of medications. I think it's, I think it's particularly when you see things like, say, kind of like, I know that obviously there's a huge difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, but a lot of type 2 diabetes is lifestyle um, linked. Yeah. And it's just that, you know, to say to somebody, oh, you know what? You could lose weight. You're going to have to change what you eat, change your lifestyle. But we know that that can um, reverse type 2 diabetes. And it's yeah. just like, why wouldn't you do that? And particularly we look at something like COVID and we go, okay, what are the most common comorbidities? They are obesity and diabetes. Yeah. You know, it, it's... I, I, absol- I really hope that you're right, Joe, because I, I do think that... Um, I mean... It's, it's a strange old thing. I wonder if people, the, the way that this has been orchestrated in a way, particularly when it comes to things like um, the way that the people are being so coerced into having this vaccine without, you know, we know that kind of like, you know, it doesn't 
it doesn't properly exit trials until 2023. We know that the manufacturers um, have got indemnity from prosecution from it. Um, and that well, we them... know. I don't know if the, the average person knows these things. Well, well, <laughs> yeah. well this is we, OK, we'll put it yeah. out there. You know, if someone is listening to this and doesn't know that these are statements of fact. But the, the problem I find as well is that the word vaccine has um, and, and for Very good powerful. reasons, I mean, it's so powerful and being given such a um, such a high pedestal in the media and in, in the general consciousness that you, it's hard to change that. And I really find it frustrating that the vaccine industry, well, the industry, the pharmaceutical industry has used the word vaccine to basically give this COVID-19 injection, uh, put yes. it on its pedestal. Because mm. um, if they, because if they'd called it a gene therapy, the uptake would not have been anywhere close to what it was. No, or even just the medicine. It would have been different. And but this is the thing, Joe. I think that one of the things about you know vaccines as an industry, as whatever, it's they 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 rest in a really interesting place because it's about ethics. And the thing is that if you say kind of like, oh, I've got a vaccine, and it in in our trials, it can prevent this or that, ethically, it's kind of like, well it kind of says kind of like oh well, you should give it to everyone then mm -hmm. because it, how can we deprive people of something that could prevent them from getting this even if actually they're not a risk from it at all yeah. but that's the crazy thing you know it's come back and this was the thing about all of this it was supposed to be 15 million jabs take care of the most vulnerable because actually as we know um the survival you know the, the average age of death from this is above the age of you know normal mortality in this country yeah i think it's 85 isn't it and yeah it's you know how does that work so why are you that you know but but what's been really interesting as well i think it's kind of like the whole way that we've managed to somehow um manipulate i i've spoken people who i respect you know have turned around to me and said you know particularly talking about children go oh well they can spread they can spread it and i'm like well anyone can spread it but the, the idea I find that really awful that someone can even say, kind of, oh, children can spread it. It's kind of, what? So, what? We've never had colds before. We've never had flus before. Have, have we ne we've never had non um, We've never yeah. had illnesses which have been spread before. But yeah. suddenly with COVID, we're in this place. I just, I. It, well, it's, I, it's come out. I mean, it's almost, mind, really. I, think, I think most people agree that the this injection let's not call it a vaccination the injection has not mm. prevented spread and they never said it would no. Um, no, and it hasn't and that's where you're right joe yeah because and that's the thing what people forget is and i think that's the problem that the, the issue is because they've called it a vaccine people have assumed that it will prevent spread and no we all know you go back to what were these vaccines designed for they were designed to in theory, decrease severity of symptoms and hopefully prevent death and hospitalisation. Yeah. And that's what they were designed for, nothing else. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, that the data that they've, <laughs> they've shown that it's got 90 something percent uh, efficiency or efficacy, I can't remember what's the mm. word, but actually that was relative and not absolute. So it was relative <laughs> to other. So it was a cl clever play on the statistics, but also, um, we, flu vaccination has been around for 20 years or so, I think. And on a, on a best year where um, high, you know, high rates of vaccination were 
were achieved, um, the statistics have shown a, a 7% decrease in the number of flu-related illness from yeah. the vaccination program, which is better than nothing, but it's not um, the full story. 7% isn't enough for me to say, right, job done, you know, uh, vaccination sorted flu. It's, it's there. It's, it's a tool in the toolbox. I'm happy for it to be a tool and if people want to take it, it's their choice. Um, but, again, it's, but again, it's a question of, you know, if that's, if, to me, it's like, if you, if you want to have that, if that makes you feel safer, have it. Yeah. Have it. I, I've got nothing. You know, you, you want to take a flu vaccine, have a flu vaccine. But yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. Exactly. I feel that I invest in my health substantially. It's really, really important to me. I keep fit. I eat healthfully. I, you know, I, I don't eat any processed food. You know, I take supplements. These are things. These are choices I make so that I stay healthy. Mm -hmm. I don't, don't, I don't, you know, if you're really, really scared and you're vulnerable and you kind of think you're going to get flu and that's going to affect you, fine, you do that. But I don't think I need to. Yeah. And, and I that's think, my choice. Yeah. And I think that's where the crux of the issue is more around the vaccine passport than the vaccine itself. Because mm. um, if it was just about the vaccine and it was only one injection ever, um, would I take it? Probably not. But still, it would be a different story, a different yeah. Um, you know, my monologue would be sort of looking at it and the, the risk risks of taking it versus whether it would have a benefit. But when I kind of reading about the topic, you know, early on, and, and I kind of could see this happening, um, you know, early 2020, it wasn't a, the vaccine wasn't about people being vaccinated. It was about this introduction of the vaccine passport. That's the underlying. I could see it already. The underlying kind of push. And as soon as it started to happen, you know, later on in the year, I was like, yeah, this is this is what, what's really going on. And, 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 to, and to bring that really back down to basics, what I don't, and I, I think for a lot of people, the confusion rests on the fact that we know now from so many pieces of research, you know, really peer reviewed, you know, that because it doesn't stop transmission, you know, and again, people will go, oh, it, re but it reduces it. But I think the data went out being shown is that kind of like, it, it might reduce it really, really minorly, but kind of like compare a vaccinated and unvaccinated person, there's not a lot in it. Um, but um, if it doesn't, you know, we, even with, even with the vaccination, it's right from the early days, it's kind of like, so what, so what we're actually saying that we were creating were people who were potentially asymptomatic super spreaders. So you're saying, come back, because, you know, be, and, and, you know, so then the idea of having a vaccine passport when a person who is fully vaccinated is just as able to have COVID, but because they're not showing any symptoms and can go anywhere they like, they're, they're super spreaders. Yeah. So, it's yeah. Kind of, so why, why on earth are you differentiating between two sets of people you're saying kind of like unvaccinated will spread but double vaccinated won't yeah but that, that's nonsense we can see so so what what sense on earth is there in having a vaccine passport I know. what does it mean 
doesn't mean anything. It's, but that's, it seems to be, where has our critical thinking gone? Yeah, it, it's a creep towards socialism, which is a, is a road towards slavery, in my view. <laughs> and it's just basically fully full control by the state of all the people in, in how, how they live. I mean, it's the social credit system in China is very much around that. Everything you do is monitored and any discretions uh, are penalised. Um, and that's what I feel like the globalists want for the world, not just in China, but they want that for the world. And, and the people who you talk to who might be pro-monitoring, uh, you say, well, yeah, it's going to stop, you know, bad people from doing bad things. But that's not the reality. The reality is it stops people going against government dictates. And governments, when they have that much power, they don't end up trying to protect the people. They protect themselves. And they do things like, like in China, where they're persecuting all the people practicing um, Falun Gong, where it's just a meditation practice. But they are put them in jails and in solitary, solitary confinement because of their practice of something spiritual. And yeah. people don't talk about that enough. But that is just exactly what happens in countries where they allow the state to have full control over what what, you, what the people can and can't do. Mm. So I, I don't I don't believe that the road that um, this Brexit passport has is going to be good for humanity. Um, so that's why I'm against it. But, but I think also it's kind of what what's what has happened, I think, over the last 18 months as well, is that kind of like really on a worldwide scale, I think so many people, I mean, it, it, it is Orwellian, it's animal farm, it's like yeah. all animals are yeah, yeah. Um, equal, but some are more equal than others. You see, the thing like with people, you know, I, th- I thought Matt Hancock was just an absolutely amazing example of how the hypocrisy of you're telling people how to live their lives, yet you clearly, personally, think that you are um, exempt yeah. from the rules that you put in place. So um, I just wanted to turn our attention a bit towards, um, so death, you've mentioned uh, earlier about how in your, in your role you do see death a lot, um, and certainly the projection of, of the, the fear based uh in the media around death from the from covid was so 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 big it really just it changed everything and it just showed how people can be manipulated through fear and you know we, we can talk about the role fear plays in um fear and love play in in humanity's uh you know <laughs> path um but i just wanted to talk a little bit about um how death is perceived because um just before covid actually my my grandmother uh, died at 94 um yes. and it, that was was sad but there was a part of me that was thinking that she hadn't gone she just her body had died um and then since covid i've certainly become more spiritual as a person and more aware of that side of me um mm. And my perception of death, um, and maybe it was happening already to to extent, has changed a bit. But I, I kind of keep this to myself. I wondered if you wanted to sort of talk around the perception of death, because I, I envisage a world where death could be more of a, a celebrated thing, where people have uh, that their, their body has died, but they've moved on to uh, moved on to a new realm. There are now, you know. It, they're existing they're still existing consciously but they're not existing in that body anymore um which i think there's a lot i think yeah. there's a lot of 
philosophies that feel that way, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, of course, yeah. I would say, well, you know, you've got to accept death to be able to live a good life because otherwise you, you do live in fear. You know, we do, you know, we, I think if you're taking care of somebody and they're dying, what you, what you want to do is, you know, well, A, talk about it, you know, and, and talk about, you know, I know with my mother's death, you know, we knew that kind of like it was, it was, it was soon. And one of the things which for me was I, I said to her, I'm like, what do you want me to do? What can I do for you? Let's, we planned her funeral together as much as we could. And it was just, it's kind of, it's the last thing, you know, I can do for you that, you know, you have a decision on. And it, we, we just don't, we're not open about it. You know, and actually, you know, we, I always, you know, when people, it's interesting, when people feel grief, you know, when when someone's died, I, I say kind of like, you know what, what you're feeling is their presence in their absence. Yeah. You know I mean, it's kind of like those emotions that you're feeling, it's kind of, they're wonderful things to feel because they remind you, yeah, okay, it might be a feeling of loss and their absence, but actually how wonderful that that feeling there just reminds you of how much you love them. Yeah. And... And they've ne never gone. They can't be there with you in, in, in body there, form, you know, but they're always there with you. They're part in a way. of you. Yeah. You, but you are. You're part of them. And you, you can put that on a really kind of biological, genetical, genetic level if you want to. But they're part of your DNA. They're part of you. Yeah. And death is an important part of the process for, for, a, new, for a new life as well. It's... Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this is... What I find really sad is the fact that our health service, you know, is so it's it's so preoccupied with lengthening life as opposed to quality of life. Yeah. And that's one of the things can kind of like to bring it back to care work. So I would say, you know, at least once a day when I'm just doing care, someone one of my clients would say, please, can you help me to die? I'll mm -hmm. pay you. You know, the, you know the, a full-time care package for most people, if they're, you know, it's being paid for by the council or whatever in social care is, so full-time care is basically two and a half hours a day. And what that means is that you have a carer comes in for 45 minutes in the morning, half an hour at lunchtime, half an hour to do your dinner, and then 45 minutes to put you to bed. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... So our absolute that it's so distasteful, it's so awful that we think that is sufficient. And that's how we treat people. And yeah. that's, and, 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 and um, you know, and look at the way carers are seen. You know, this is kind of like, you're talking about, you know, boring statistics but you know we talk about the nhs and we say 1.3 million people you know largest employer in the country you know and they've all got pensions they've got this they've got that blah 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 social care 1.5 million workers 
10,000 agencies, most earning, you know, kind of like zero type hours contracts with, you know, um, um, earning less than living wage. Yeah. And these same people worked all the way through lockdowns when GPs wouldn't come out. GPs still won't see patients. Oh, why? Yeah. You know, but somehow, somehow paying you less as a person, does that make you less at risk from a virus? No, because well, people system, are the system poorly, is just broken, isn't it? it? It is broken. And we need to come back to that. And we need to focus on the things which are important. The learning, the learning, I mean, the learning should have been, and again, I go back to all those letters I wrote to people. This is like you should be spending. How can we be in the situation now that we've almost, you know, two years almost later, that we still are sitting there going, kind of, they've still not sorted out the NHS. They've still not sorted out social care. Mm -hmm. They spent a load of money on tests and traces. Actually, no, go to where your problems are. We know the reason why you've got, you haven't got enough capacity in hospitals, A, because you cut it, and B, because you've got beds full of people who can't be released because they can't be, there's no care package in place for them, and there's no place in care homes because yeah. there's no carers. Yeah. And what did you do? You said, okay, if you don't get vaccinated, double vaccinated, then we're going to sack you. Mm -hmm. it, it defies and these are the same people who have worked you know i've worked through the whole thing joe and it's you know i've been tested ad infinitum i've never ever tested positive yeah, yeah. you know despite being so exposed one would think despite having been out there in the midst of the pandemic having no lockdown whatsoever throughout the whole thing yeah i mean i would say my um during the pandemic i didn't probably adhere to lockdown to the fullest extent i was i was against it i mean no, I, I worked sure, from home surely not <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know i worked from home and i you know i did put on my silly mask when i went into shops um, but ultimately um i feel like if if this thing was real then i should be dead by now really <laughs> Well, if it's as bad as they say it was yeah. funny in this is another story about the bbc in january I am, um, and when we had kind of like, obviously they were telling us about, you know, all huge lockdown, they locked us down again, you know, when, when cases had started to fall already, you know, and told us how awful it was. And um, at this point, this was before I actually turned off the BBC completely, because I was just like, I just can't do this anymore. Um, and they were showing these scenes of kind of like, they had crews in kind of like, you know, hospitals, COVID wards, and, you know, kind of, and I just wrote to them and just to complain and just said, I can't believe you're so irresponsible to why are you sending this the story is it's so bad yet what we're going to do and there's hospitals are so under pressure we're going to send a film crew in mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know sorry and and the reply i got was oh well you know we need to um we need to show people how bad it is and you feel like saying i don't need to see a person on fire to say don't play with matches do you know what I mean? And also the fact of um, their final line was, we replace any PPE we use. Yeah. As if yeah. that's what I'm caring about, as if that's my point. I'm like, you can't tell me this is so, but you're still putting all those people in your crew 
at risk by going into a COVID ward and talking to people and filming people who are dying. I don't think there's anything more distasteful and disrespectful that I have ever heard of, you know. Um, you, you, even the relatives can't go in, but it's all right. The BBC can send a film crew in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the whole thing. I, I, I could talk a lot about how much the media um, were working against the people in my, in my view, and I turned them off as well. Uh, I, couldn't, I could not watch the BBC or ITV or and Channel it's all 4 going. Anyway. It's still you, going. I can't watch it still. If, if you don't listen to mainstream media, you wouldn't know anything was happening. Exactly. Well, I think by now you may have you may have picked up this maybe this weird disease that causes people to lose their sense of smell is is out right. there and maybe be conscious of that. But certainly, I, I certainly felt that probably six months in, had the media not projected to set that level of fear, would people know about covid they'd probably just think that the flu had got a bit worse that year or or something I, I mean i just couldn't I, I found it so weird particularly in those initial stage i really did think i thought they're not seriously common sense they're not gonna lock us down this is not gonna end well this is this is how can you the whole oh, idea no. even at the beginning going but what also i think what's so sad is the fact that there were pandemic protocols in place, but, the, but these, these things had been written clearly, millions if not billions of pounds had been spent on preparedness for these things. Yet when it happened, we chucked that, all of those out the window. Why? Yeah. yeah. You, know, we, we, you know, the whole idea that kind of like, you know, that it, 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 it defies sanity. I, and I I'm looking forward to the day to look back on all this with everyone and just have a big hard look at ourselves and say how did this happen I mean I could see it all yeah. through it from the beginning but I was just surprised how few people I could turn to and say do you not see that, that this this well this perception I'm having does this not um, correlate at all to your perception yeah. um, but I, had to, I kind of had to keep quiet you know with certain close people I did talk about it and, it, and I felt mm. ostracized a bit by these views and it was just like oh my goodness this is um a creep towards Nazi Germany. I felt, I mean, it, it sounds extreme, but I did feel no different to probably uh, a Jew sit in in the in Germ in Weimar Republic ascent in sort of early thirties Germany. Okay, the concentration camps, the ghettos hadn't happened yet, but you yeah. knew that the anti-Semitism was there. You knew that uh, the fate for you wasn't wasn't looking so good with all mm. the um, all the things going on, and I felt the same level of potentiality in my future as those poor people in, in Germany because I could see that there was this push by both the media and the corporations to a certain narrative and anyone who was against that was censored and ostracized and, and caught, told an anti-vaxxer and I just thought this is exactly the same thing that's, that happened that's, in Germany. But that's the thing it's got you know I, I, I think there was a there was a statement from the CEO of Pfizer recently where he made some comment about people who who said anything negative about vaccines were liars and and I'm I, with the best will in the world I mean let's look into the background of Pfizer and these you know oh, massive gosh, yeah. pharmaceutical <laughs> companies I mean <laughs> it does not read well in terms of transparency Waters. honesty um compensation for people who may have suffered harms at the you know from their products you know I'm, I'm really again these are people kind of like who are making statements about moral codes when i would say there's an incredibly questionable 
Yeah, I mean, uh, before COVID, you could probably say that Big Pharma was a little bit enemy, a bit of an enemy in a, in a way, um, in the projection. And suddenly they were the, they were our friends and they were trusted to be trusted, you know. It yeah, kind of it switched can... so quickly. And again, but we're still talking about a product, which even after all this time, the manufacturers are still not vouching for its safety. Yeah. And you would think after however many millions, if not billions of doses that have been administered, at which point will they say it's safe? Uh, And so we're all all being told (laughs) it's safe. We're all being told it's safe. Yet... They, as the manufacturer, however many doses they've administered, will still not say vouch for its safety. Yeah, actually, I think Pfizer have, have given themselves fifty-five years before they I've need, seen they that. To, yeah, release the data. Well, we'll got. all be dead. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's oh, oh, whoops. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope it's... I am anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'll be over a hundred. God. We can l- lament on the craziness that has happened, but yeah. if we can try and refer to positives i see i see covid as much as the harm it has done as being a catalyst towards change and i feel i see that change every day and i see people's consciousness is becoming more aware and thinking for themselves not just being told thinking what they're being told to think by the media the media industry or or even by their friends who are also following the media industry it's it's allowing people to have a bit more sovereignty in what they mm. think, in what they do, and just being more aware of the importance of freedom. Because um, I would, uh, and I think we spoke this before the podcast. Uh, I would rather die a horrible death, but know that I have tried my best to save the freedom for my children, yeah. than to do nothing and to see the freedom for my children slip away, and know that their children and their children will suffer um, an existence where they're not given the freedoms to choose and to do what, how, how to live their life how they want. And I know that might sound yeah. extreme considering that we are living in a world where I can still go to the supermarket right now, but the, the creep towards that was very evident. I think yeah. there's, there are counter forces in play that are halting that, that move towards, um, I guess, transhumanism and the whole kind of agenda towards socialism and, um, without talking too much on that, I see counterforces happening, um, and I see more and more people each day saying, "You know what? I think I think the people who we once ostracised are actually they've, they've, they're onto something." Especially in America, in the UK, we seem we still seem yes. quite asleep, but in America, I see it. I think I, I, th- I think the change will be um, as well. I think that I do. Yeah, I, no, Joe. I, I would just say. I, I really hope you're right. And I mm. and I think one of the things that, you know, is really important is that, you know, we we retain our positivity. Yeah. And we say, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna exactly. be okay. Yeah. Because because in a in a weird way, you know, if we start going around going, oh my God, doom and gloom and stuff like that, that actually means that we've succumbed to the fear we're feeding it yeah yeah which yeah. and we do yeah and where the other hand is I like, that. You know, it, it, it's the thing just to go kind of like you know what it's like today it's, it's cloudy but the last couple of days oh my word the sunshine it's been amazing i'm yeah. literally like yes yes excellent I know. I, i've definitely and learned that last year that. yeah embrace what's good and 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 see it 
view everything with love as much as possible and not get pulled into the fear and I think that's the best message well that's kind of like you know I've been on kind of like you know the march some of the you know kind of like the um anti-vaccine passport marches and anti-lockdown marches and the thing I would say is you know a they are such an amazing example of you know if, if you want to see inclusion and diversity you know, I mean, I know, again, no mainstream media wants to report on them, but the BBC wanted to see something which is, represents the diversity of this nation. You see it there. Yeah, and the vibe um, as well, the high vibe. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, you know, I, you know, my own personal thing is to send love out to, and I don't mean that, you know, it was positivity out to all those, all those police who are kind of like, you know, who are standing by there and you feel like saying, you don't have to. You you can have a different. You can think about this logically and go, why are you? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know? I apparently I read that there's going to be a massive. Um, there's I mean obviously going to be big demonstrations tomorrow, and I, I read I don't know if it's true, but in Austria that tomorrow the army, being the twentieth of November. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Just because um, uh, this might not go out. It, might, it won't be, yeah. Um, it, and apparently in Austria, I heard even the army were going to, were standing down and were going to march and stand with people. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I've just seen something come through. I think that Austria may have gone, gone into complete lockdown again. Lockdown for the unvaccinated. And it's it's basically a well, two-tier system. And, and that is exactly where, you know. Just, I've, yeah, I've so. just seen flash up, but I think it's everyone. Everyone, is it? But, you know, ultimately... Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, the, it's nonsense. The, the, because, the, the, but they were still saying that people... You can still go to work. You can still go to school. You can work in a bar as an unvaccinated person, but you can't have a drink. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think... It shows the ridiculousness of it. I think they're going to try and push the, uh, the craziness back into the UK. I wonder if people will accept it and adopt it to the same level. I think there'll be a mixture again. I, I hope people will... Just carry on with life as normal. Take precautions. If you've got symptoms, fine, stay at home, isolate. Yeah. But it's also, Joe, if, you if you're scared, healthy, yeah. you know, fine, be yeah. scared and stay at home. But, yeah. but I do think, what's sad, I do think that there's an element as well of there are people who, again, who probably some people, they don't want to go out. It, life Life hasn't been made scary only by COVID. There's been a lot of kind of, you know, making people scared, don't go out, it's dangerous out there and things like that. Some people have bought into that anyway. Mm. And it's kind of like, but, but don't, just because you're frightened, don't stop other people having their freedoms because of your own personal fear. I think mm. that's really sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think uh, well, if we can round if we can round this up. But uh, thank you for for doing this, Jean. It's been uh, a, a great chat, and um, hopefully we can talk again sometime. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, you take care. Thank you for doing it.